Turn in your Bibles with me this morning to Matthew chapter number 27. Matthew chapter number 27. Uh, last week we began looking at a little thought uh, in the Gospels about uh, our Lord's ministry, the close of His earthly ministry, and we picked on a theme and took some time to notice uh, something that is found in the Word of God. There are three occasions, really there's four, but there's three we're going to take the time to look at, that, that sort of orbit around the time of our Lord's death, burial, and resurrection. Three moments when the Holy Spirit of God emphasizes that events took place at a, at a particular time of day, what we would call the morning time. Uh, we could say it this way, there are three morning scenes that are recorded in connection with the close of our Lord's earthly ministry. And we began to think about what morning uh, is and why it is significant. You know, it's not by accident. The Bible teaches us that the division of our days is something that is not necessarily the invention of human ingenuity, but it's something that God did from the beginning. He said the evening and the morning were the first day. And so He distinguished those seasons of time uh, through which we experience life. And it's not by accident. Nothing in your King James Bible is there by accident or by incident. And it's not by accident that the Holy Ghost of God points out to us that certain events transpired in the morning season, in the morning time. And so we've taken a few moments to consider what that means. You know, why is morning a meaningful time? Some people are morning people. Others are night owls. Apparently, as our senior saints ministry is, I was unaware, but they like to party into the late hours of the night, stay up all hours eating, eating moon pies and drinking RC, amen? But, uh, but uh, you know, the morning time is a meaningful, significant time for a lot of people. And I began to think about why it is meaningful. You know, we could say it in, in this way that morning, there are three things about it that are meaningful. One, morning time is a time of illumination. It is a time when the sun comes out and the darkness is scattered and things are brought into the light. Now, how many of you, your mom or daddy told you when you was young, there ain't nothing out there in the dark that's not there during the day? Anybody ever heard that? Ain't nobody ever ran up on a mad possum before, or they'd know that's not true, amen? But uh, what we mean by that is that it just simply discloses, it illuminates, it reveals certain things. And then morning time is a time of transition. It's a time when uh, the day is changing from the darkness to the day, from the nighttime uh, to the daytime. It is a time of transition, a time of change. And then morning time is a time of anticipation. It's a time when you look with, with expectancy about what the day will hold and how things will unfold before you. And when you look at each of these thoughts, they each one are embodied by one of these morning scenes that the Lord Jesus experiences and that the Holy Ghost shares with us in the inspired Word of God. We spent a few moments last week looking at the morning of cursing. You say, now preacher, what's the morning of cursing? Well, not long before our Lord went to Calvary, there was a morning when He was passing from Bethany into Jerusalem and He sees a fig tree there and that fig tree has leaves on it, has everything it needs to be bearing fruit. Uh, but when he approaches it, looks upon it, it's not bearing any fruit. And the Bible says that he cursed that fig tree. He said, let no fruit grow henceforth on thee forevermore. And when they come back through later in the day, that fig tree has withered. It is no longer living. And we talked about what that meant for the nation of Israel, what that means for us in our everyday life. But it was a time when God was revealing some things about His plan for humanity and revealing some things, some spiritual realities for your life and for mine. Suffice it to say, God don't just want foliage, He wants fruit. Amen? 
Uh, now, anything that's bearing fruit is going to have foliage. If there is uh, fruit that is meaningful, that is real, it will manifest itself outwardly. But God's not just interested in leafy Christians. He's interested in living Christians. People that know the Lord and that are bearing fruit in their life. Next week, if the Lord will help us, we're going to look at a third morning scene that's found. And you're probably not surprised to hear that it's on the resurrection morning uh, that we're going to lay our attention next week. And that embodies the idea of anticipation. Uh, there was a great fulfillment of God's promises when Christ got up victorious from the grave. Uh, but it also foreshadows a greater day for you and I when we're going to be awakened in resurrection power, given a new body, and be able to dwell in that fullness uh, like the Lord Jesus does even now. But this morning in our text, we'll read in a moment, we find our second morning scene. And it is what we could call a time of transition. I want you to notice it with me this morning, beginning in verse number 33. The Bible says this, And when they were come unto a place called Golgotha, that is to say, a place of a skull, they gave him, the Lord Jesus, vinegar to drink, mingled with gall. When he had tasted thereof, he would not drink. And they crucified him and parted his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. They parted my garments among them, and upon my vesture did they cast lots. And sitting down, they watched him there and set up over his head uh, his accusation written, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then were there two thieves crucified with him, one on the right hand and another on the left. And they, pa they pa passed by, reviled him, wagging their heads, and saying, Thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself. If thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, also the chief priests mocking him with the scribes and elders said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he be the king of Israel, can I just back up and say, hey, never a truer statement was made. He could have saved himself and let you and I die and go to hell. That's not what he did, amen. He didn't spare himself. He didn't save himself. He died that he might save you and me. They said he trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the Son of God. Verse 44, the thieves also which were crucified with him cast the same in his teeth. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land unto the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Some of them that stood there when they heard that said, this man calleth for Elias. And straightway one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with vinegar and put it on a reed and gave him to drink. The rest said, Let be, let us see whether Elias will come to save him. Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. Behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. And the earth did quake and the rocks rent and the graves were open. Many bodies of the saints which slept arose and came out of the graves after his resurrection went into the holy city and appeared unto many. Now when the centurion and they that were with him watching Jesus saw the earthquake and those things that were done, they feared greatly, saying, truly, this was the Son of God. Let's pray together. Father, we love you this morning. What a blessing to be in this place. Lord, we've already had our hearts encouraged this morning and stirred uh, through the testimonies, through the singing, Lord, through the special singing. We already feel meaningfully your presence in this place. Lord, our earnest heart's desire is that you would have perfect liberty today to work in each and every heart that's here. There's not a single person here that's not in need of hearing from heaven. 
Lord, though the needs may be diverse in their application, though there may be folks here that need to be saved, there may be folks here that uh, need to be drawn closer to You, there may be folks here that need to be encouraged, maybe some that need to be abased. But Lord, all of those needs are not beyond the scope of Your ability to meet. Lord, even with this one moment, even through this one message. So I pray that the sweet Holy Ghost would have liberty today to stir hearts, to walk amongst these pews, to work in the lives of those that are here present listening. We'll be sure to thank you for what transpires. For if anything that makes a difference in eternity happens this morning, it'll be because you've done it and you alone. We'll be sure to thank you for it. Lord, we love you and we ask all these things in Christ's name. As we read in Matthew chapter number 27, the time of day denoted by Matthew, he says that it began to be dark at the sixth hour and was dark from the sixth hour till the ninth hour. Uh, Mark's account of this sets the time of the beginning of the crucifixion at the third hour of the day. It says in Mark 15:25, it was the third hour and they crucified him. Now I'd remind you that the Bible is reckoning time here according to Jewish time. If you were to study out this time and, and uh, study out how they applied the hours of the day, you'd find that, uh, as the Bible says, the evening and the morning is the first day. Their day was divided into two 12-hour sections. And it went from uh, 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. That was the morning time. And uh, then it went from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. And that was the evening time. And so Mark and Matthew are reckoning the time according to that Jewish reckoning. When the Bible says it was the third hour, what that means is it was what we would call 9 a.m. in the morning. In other words, all of these things that transpired to our Lord, the mock trial, the kangaroo court, the scourging, all of these happened in the deep darkness of night. And about the time of 9 a.m., they took the Lord Jesus and nailed Him to a rugged cross, set Him up there for all of the world to behold and to see. For three hours He hung there, and then the Bible says at what we would call 12 o'clock noon, that all of a sudden the sun went dark all over, Luke says, all over the face of the earth. This was not just some local eclipse. And if you study out uh, the astronomy of that time, you'll find that the Jewish calendar was a lunar calendar, meaning it went according to the newness of the moon. And uh, this would have been the time of Passover. So that would have been the 14th day of, of the month of Bib. It would have been, in other words, the middle of the month. Now, I don't know if you've ever paid any attention to the skies, but if you go right smack dab in the middle of a new moon and an old moon, you find a full moon. If you know anything about spatial ideas, about where things are at in the galaxy, you know that we see a full moon because the moon's on one side of the earth and the sun's on the other side of the earth. So, preacher, what are you getting at? I'm saying that a, a solar eclipse was completely and utterly scientifically impossible to transpire on this day. This was not just merely a, a, an occurrence of, uh, of astronomical proportions. This was a divine manifestation of a profound truth. And so from six, uh, the sixth hour, from 12 o'clock noon till 3 o'clock in the afternoon, the Bible says that there was darkness upon the face of the earth. You know, when we think about this moment in human history, I don't think that we're overstating it to say that not only is this a moment of transition for the sake of our preaching and, and our consideration, but in fact that this morning of Calvary was not just a moment of transition, rather it was the moment of transition for all of human history. A Calvary is the hinge upon which human history swings. It's the great transition moment in the sweeping epic of God's drama of the ages. We could say this, you say, preacher, did Calvary change anything? Hey, Calvary changed everything. 
Calvary changed things in heaven for there the precious innocent blood of the Lord Jesus was applied to the mercy seat and the mercy and grace of God. Hey, as the songwriter says, there was a fountain open that flows even to this very day. Calvary changed things on earth. Hey, things ain't never been the same since Calvary. God supernaturally in the wake of Calvary injected the church, the body of Christ into human history forever transforming how men would know God and see God and hear God and, and apprehend God in their conscience. You say, preacher, was it just heaven and earth? Hey, it wasn't just in, up in heaven. It wasn't just on the earth. Calvary changed things under the earth. The preacher, what do you mean? Well, our Bible teaches us that prior to Calvary, uh, well, let me back up a little bit. The Bible teaches us that there is a lake of fire. That's a spiritual location. It is a spiritual existence. But there is also a place the Bible calls hell. And hell is in the heart and center of the earth. That's why the book of Isaiah says that hell from beneath hath enlarged herself. Hey, that's true for the, that's true for the Chinaman. That's true for the East Tennessee hillbilly. Don't matter where you're at on the earth, hell's beneath you. Why? Because hell is in the heart and center of the earth. The Bible also teaches us in Luke chapter number 16 that while there is a place called hell in the heart and center of the earth, there was also a place that's called paradise. Do you remember when the Lord Jesus tells us, it's not a parable, it's a true story of a man by the name of Lazarus who dies in the Lord and a rich man whose name's not given, who dies in his sins. And the Bible says that the rich man, he, he lifted his eyes up in hell and that the beggar Lazarus, he lifted his eyes up in paradise and they're in a place where they can see one another. They're adjacent to one another. The Bible says there was a great gulf fixed between them, a great chasm between them. But they're obviously in the same geographic location. Do you know the book of Ephesians tells us that everything changed when Christ died on Calvary? That one of the things He did during that three days and three nights is He went down into the heart of the earth. The Bible says He descended in the lower parts of the earth. He took all them Old Testament saints who because they had not been yet sanctified by the perfect blood, not of a lamb, but of the Lamb of God, who were not fit to be in the presence of God in glory and in heaven. But now that the blood had been applied to the mercy seat, He goes down into paradise. He collects those Old Testament saints and He marches up on high victorious to deliver them into the presence of God. You say, preacher, what are you getting at? I'm saying Calvary changed everything everywhere. It was not just a transition moment. It was the transition moment in all of human history. And when we look at Calvary through that perspective and through that light, we find that even at the cross, there were certain things that bore witness and testimony to the fact that everything had changed and that nothing was ever going to be the same. We, in our reading of the text this morning, we read past merely the death of the Lord, and we read the account of several miracles that transpired at Calvary. In fact, there are five miracles that take place. One takes place before He dies. That's the darkness that covered the face of the earth. Three take place at the moment of His death. The veil in the temple is rent. The earthquakes and the rocks rent. And the graves are then opened. And then there's one that takes place that though it takes place three days later at the moment of His resurrection, the Holy Ghost saw fit to in include it in this description. And that's the Bible saying says that some bodies of some Old Testament saints arose and walked and bore witness throughout Jerusalem. I've always been fascinated by these miracles for this reason. They are miracles indeed, but they are distinct from the other miracles that our Lord performed. Typically a miracle is a divine manifestation of power. And it was meant for the purpose of, of authenticating the Lord Jesus' power or whoever it might have been. There were miracles performed in the Old Testament, miracles performed in the book of Acts. It was meant to give authenticity to the divine power there, to certify the divine presence 
uh, that was manifesting that power. But oftentimes, beyond that and beyond maybe illustrating a spiritual truth, they typically held no impact beyond that. In other words, you said, preacher, what are you getting at? Well, I'm saying when Jesus raised the man from the dead, he went on to die again. When he raised somebody up from, from a bed of lameness, their legs eventually quit on them. I'm not saying immediately, but as all of our legs one of these days is going to quit on us, eventually they lay down in death and they no longer function. And on and on we could go. And yet when we look at these five miracles, they're distinct in this sense that though they are transitory, though they are just temporary, they are not just divine manifestations of power. Whether they are temporal or earthly responses to heavenly events that are taking place. It's not just God saying, I'm going to prove my divinity. But rather it's that things were shifting and moving, transitions were taking place in glory that brought about a response in this temporal realm. They are not merely earthly expressions of divine power, rather they are earthly responses to spiritual events taking place. We could say it this way, they are shockwaves from heavenly realities. They are not just God saying, look, I'm God, but rather there are things changing and moving and shifting that brought about change and move and shifting in this very world that we live in. Can I just say this? Hey, Calvary don't mean much if it can't change in this things in this world as well. Christianity don't mean much if it can't change things in this world as well. Salvation don't mean much if it can't change much in this world as well. And we find this testimony borne witness to in these five miracles. And so I think the best way to think about Calvary as a moment of transition is to look at these five miracles and ask ourselves, what things were changing that brought about changes in this natural world? I want you to notice these five miracles this morning and then we'll be done. Look with me at verse number 45. We find the first of these miracles. The Bible says, now from the sixth hour, now remember, this is at a time when there should have been a full moon. The moon's nowhere near the sun. A, a, a solar eclipse is, is an impossibility. This is not only a, a, a time as far as the month, but it's a time of the day when the sun should have been in the highest point, uh, portion, the, the, the most prominent area of the sky. The Bible says from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land. Luke tells us that it was over all the earth as well unto the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I'm going to go ahead and admit to you, I remember my pastor used to always talk about Isaiah 53. He said for years he never preached Isaiah 53 because it scared him to preach it. The truth was just so intimate and so powerful, he didn't know he could do it justice. And if I'm being frank this morning, I'm a little scared to preach on this miracle. Not because I think anything's going to happen to me or happen to you that's bad, but it's just hard to really describe what must have taken place in those three hours of darkness. He said, Preacher, what can we learn about it? Well, there's a myriad of things, man. We can learn how dark our sin is. He said, Preacher, how, how bad's my sin? How dark's my sin? I, you know, we think our sin's okay. We think it's really not that bad. We think everybody else's is pretty rough, but ours is okay. He said, Preacher, how bad's my sin? Bad enough to darken the sun. Bad enough to blot out the, the, the orb, the star of glory. Bad enough to darken the whole earth. You say, preacher, what else does that darkness teach us? Well, it teaches us that God, in, in dealing with uh, the, the sin problem of humanity and in dealing with His Son in this moment, He shut the world out, for it was not of the world's concern. God wasn't asking the world to redeem themselves, but He was shutting them out of the process and saying, I will deal with your sin problem myself. 
Really, when we look at this miracle, I think there is one thing that we should say this morning above all others, that this was a moment of transition, and it was a moment spiritually of transition from darkness to light. You say, now, wait a minute, preacher. That's not what I read in my Bible. It's not a moment from darkness to light. It's a moment from light to darkness. That's because you're talking about the wrong kind of darkness. It's true there's an atmospheric, atmospheric darkness. There's a darkness that even the Bible says atmospherically can be so palpable that it can almost be felt around you. But it is not merely the atmospheric darkness that's being emphasized here, but rather that's just bearing witness to a spiritual darkness that has always and forever since the fall of man in the garden has shrouded this broken world. The Bible describes the spiritual darkness of this world in John chapter number 1 when it says that light came into the world, uh, but men comprehended it not. The darkness comprehended it not. Men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Uh, the first time we ever see this world, it is shrouded in darkness. Darkness is upon the face of the deep. And the first time that light ever shines in this world, it's because the Word of God. You know who the Word of God is, don't you? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. John goes on to say down in John 1.14, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt amongst us, and we beheld His glory like as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. You know that Jesus, He is the Word, right? Uh, the first time that the darkness is ever scattered and shattered is when God speaks His Word and says, Let there be light. I'm saying this, Jesus has been breaking up darkness since the beginning. And the darkness is scattered at His presence and at His power, but that darkness that is so ingrained in the human condition has uh, prevailed and, and, and has ran all over the face of the earth, so much so that we're living in a day of consistent and constant spiritual darkness all around us. Listen, it wouldn't help me and it wouldn't help you for me to get up here and talk about all the wicked darkness that we see around us. But suffice it to say, man, turn on the TV, turn on the news, turn on the Internet, and you're going to see darkness all around you. This world is a world that is shrouded in darkness. But here for just a few moments, there was a great transition that took place. All of that darkness was taken and consolidated and placed upon the one that is the true light. And he became darkness for us. So, oh, preacher, don't say that. Well, that's what Paul said. For God hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. He ain't talking about we knew no sin, that he knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. I want you to notice here, number one, the truth of a great darkness. We find here that God is expressing the darkness of mankind's sin and the depth of the spiritual darkness that mankind dwells in. Can I tell you, this world lives in a perpetual spiritual darkness that is so deep, so abiding, so severe that they lack the capacity to have a right comprehension of who God is. Except for the light of the truth of the Word of God, this world would never have a clear understanding of who God is. Mankind can't, this is how the book of Job says, well, will man find God if he happily feels after him? Can I tell you, mankind cannot feel God in and of himself, cannot find God in and of himself. You say, but preacher, the heavens declare the handiwork of God. That's right, and left unto themselves. Mankind, like a bunch of pagans, will worship the creature more than the Creator. Left unto themselves, mankind would not look towards the heaven and say, there must be a glorious, all-wise, all-infinite God that created all this, but would rather point back to the primordial sludge and say, we must have come from amoebas. That's what did all this. So deep, so abiding is the spiritual darkness of humanity uh, that when light comes in, darkness doesn't even comprehend it. So can I tell you what the blessed, precious God of glory did? He said the darkness can't deal with the light, but the light can deal with the darkness. 
And He took His precious Son and there shrouded with darkness over all of humanity and atmospheric darkness. He took the spiritual darkness of humanity and put it upon His Son and made Him to be sin that He might die in your place and in mine on Calvary. You see, I see not only here the proof of a great darkness, but I see the transfer of a great debt. The very next phrase that takes place, and in fact the thing that shattered the darkness is deeply significant. It's interesting. There's not a lot of times the Lord Jesus asks questions. You know, a, a, an omniscient God don't have to ask questions. But He would ask, and you've heard me say this before, the Lord only ever asked rhetorical questions. What's a rhetorical question? It's a question that... what That was a rhetorical question. Irony, right? Uh, what is a rhetorical question? It's a question that you ask that you don't expect an answer to, but you're asking for the benefit of the person to whom you're asking like if your parents ever looked at you and said, am I stupid? They did not expect you to answer. And you already know that. That's why you're here today. Amen. Still drawing a breath. That's a rhetorical question. When the Lord asks this question, it's not because He needs an answer. It's because He wants you to know the answer. And He says this, My God, my God, why hast Thou forsaken me? In this statement, we find a myriad of things. Tom would fail us to preach them all. But I want to draw your attention to two things. One, I want you want to draw your attention to the uh, to the address to the title that he gave God. You know, this is the only time throughout Scripture when he calls him in his earthly ministry when he calls his father God instead of his father. I can't explain all the mysteries that transpired in this place. I can't describe all of the nuance of what was taking place in the Godhead. But somehow, something there was a transition. Something changed. In this brief moment, and He was treated not as the blessed only begotten Son, but as a broken sinner in the eyes of an angry and wrathful God. He calls Him not His Father, but He calls Him His God. And then notice His question, Why hast Thou forsaken Me? This implies to us that there was something that transpired, some severing that took place, and I'd not presume to try to explain it because I'd make a mess of it. But somehow, the Lord Jesus was forsaken in those moments. Somehow the light was was covered in darkness that you and I in our darkness might escape and be translated into the light. And he asked this simple question, why? I'd just venture a guess that the living incarnate Word of God knew why, but He wanted you and I to ask why. I can give you the simple answer. You say, preacher, why, why, why? I, I can't tell you why in the sense of motivation, but I can tell you why in the sense of means. Preacher, why did God forsake you? So He wouldn't have to forsake you, and He wouldn't have to forsake me. All of that sin debt was taken and was placed to the account of the precious Son of God. And there in those mysterious moments of darkness, the light of the world was shrouded in darkness, shrouded in silence, shrouded in our sin was changed into being the very object of God's wrath and offended holiness so that you and I might be pardoned and might go free. What's the fundamental truth of the Gospel? His life for mine. That He, he became my sin so that I could become His Son. That, 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 that He was willing to give everything and accept my brokenness so that I could have His blessedness. All truths of the gospel really spring out of this great fundamental truth of substitution, of transference, of our debt to Him and of His glory to us that what He desires to do is to take all the things that in our brokenness we could not change and could not fix and were not salvageable and were not desirable and were not valuable. He took all of those things and gave all of who He is to us 
that we might become a child of God. John says it this way, Behold, behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we... Now, you may not think much of it when we say we, but if, you, if you're like me, when you say we, you're saying a lot that we should be called the sons of God. We see that something changed here and now mankind has no excuse to claim uh, either intellectual or spiritual darkness as an excuse. Hey, listen, look up here. You've been brought into the light and you're now accountable for that light. You know the truth of the gospel. What are you going to do with it? You can't claim ignorance anymore. You know that the light became darkness for you, that Christ became uh, the object of God's wrath. You know that He paid your debt. So now what will you do with that? The world, though it still dwells in a spiritual darkness, can never go back to the days of of revelatory or, or intellectual darkness that it once claimed. Hey, there was a time that there were some things God winked at, but He's got both eyes wide open now. Uh, we, hey, listen, He would have all men to repent and to be saved. Uh, if you die in your sins and go to hell, it's not because God wasn't paying attention. It's not because He dropped the ball. It's not because He didn't love you. It's because you climbed over Calvary to get there. We've gone from darkness to light. So I see here a transition from darkness to light. Then I see a second miracle that takes place. Look at verse number 51. The Bible says this, And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. Now, if you're not a student of the Bible, if this is the first time you've ever really sat and listened to uh, preaching, then uh, probably there's not a lot that makes sense in that statement. You're probably thinking, a temple? What temple? Uh, What kind of temple was it? You're probably thinking, a veil? Why would there be a veil in a temple? Likely, if you're not familiar with this, you're probably, when you think of a veil, thinking of a bridal veil, a little thin thing of lace that's see-through. But that's not the type of veil that's being spoken of here. In the Old Testament, uh, God had uh, commanded Solomon to construct a temple there in Jerusalem. And this was the meeting place of humanity with God. They would come to this place and they would offer sacrifices and they would burn incense and they would, would commune with the Lord and they would fulfill their responsibilities religiously to God. And if you were to look at the layout of that temple, you would find that it had three areas. It had what we called an outer court, a place where anybody was allowed to come in and, and uh, to uh, conduct their business in a religious sense. And then there's what's called the holy place. And that was the place where only the priests could go. It was a place where they would go and carry out the work of of butchering the animals that had been sacrificed and preparing the various sacrifices and, and carrying about the religious work that God had instructed them to do. But then there was a third place, and it was called not just the holy place, but the holy of holies. In this place sat a few important things. For one, in this place sat the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, In this place sat atop the ark a place called the mercy seat. And it was the place where once a year the high priest was tasked to come in and to offer the blood that had been sacrificed for the nation. They would sacrifice a bullock and bring this in and lay this blood upon the mercy seat. And the picture there was because blood had been shed, God was not going to judge the nation as a nation for another year. In other words, it was the place of ultimate sacrifice and ultimate dealing with God. In fact, the Bible teaches us in the Old Testament that the glory of God once a year on that day would sit down, would rest on that place. And God literally would come down and behold that blood, would survey that blood that had been given. But this Holy of Holies was not a place that 
Someone could just go in at any time. Even if you were the high priest, you were only permitted once a year in there. And that was only for the reason of offering this sacrifice. Commentators would tell you that when the high priest would go into this place, that they would tie a ceremonial belt around his waist and around his uh, garment that had bells on it. And they would tie a rope to that. And if they heard as the priest moved about, if they heard the bells stop ringing, they would know that because of sin in his life, such is the severity of God, that God had struck him down dead and they'd pull his lifeless body back out. Preacher, what you getting at? I'm saying it's a serious place. Uh, and I, I'm saying this, going into the presence of God is a serious thing. To keep men from wandering aimlessly into this place and to contain the glory that would dwell in that place, uh, God instructed Moses to craft a large veil and later Solomon an even larger one to hang over the door of this little room. This veil was six inches thick. It was no small, dainty thing. It was impenetrable. It was heavy. So heavy it would take multiple men to carry it. And it would take a team of people to hang it up in its place. The Bible teaches us about the construction of this veil, that it was adorned with three different colors, with red and with purple and with blue, each of these bearing significance about the person of Jesus Christ. The red reminding us of His sacrifice on Calvary. The blue reminding us of His priestly duties as our intercessor. And the purple, and by the way, boy, how much time you got? Uh, the purple reminding us of His dignity, His majesty, and His kingly person. Uh, you say, preacher, what are you getting at? I'm saying this. Uh, he was prophet, priest, and king. Uh, he was sacrificed. Uh, he was intercessor. And He was sovereign. He was all those things. And that veil represented that. The personality and person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Bible tells us in the Old Testament that that, barrier, that, that uh, veil stood there as a barrier to mankind. When men approached it, it was there to remind men that they could not pass through that veil. Can I remind you what the Old Testament law was? The law was not given to bring men to God, but to show men they could not get to God. Uh, the law was given not to justify man, but to show man that by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. It was given not that men might boast, but that every mouth might be stopped and the whole world would become guilty before God. The law was not given to show you how good you are. The law was given to show you how rotten you are. You know, the Lord Jesus, when He came and walked in flesh amongst men, uh, that He was the perfect manifestation of that law. He never broke a single commandment. He never broke a single law. And had He merely uh, left this world, gone on into glory without ever going to the cross of Calvary, He wouldn't have done a thing to be able to redeem you or I from our sins. If that veil of His flesh, of His person, had been unrent, if He had not gone to Calvary, then it would have been of no help to you and I. And yet we find at this moment of transition that there were two types of veils that were rent that day. There was the veil that was the barrier and there was the veil that was His body. When He went to Calvary's hill, that perfect, righteous, sinless life that was lived in the sight of God and man and was well-pleasing to God though it was loathed of man was taken and nailed to the cross of Calvary like a common criminal condemned according to wicked hearts and wicked hands and laid there to die for your sins and mine. The body of the Lord Jesus, though not a bone in Him was broken, His body was broken, His life was broken there on the cross of Calvary. And in response to that divine truth, the Bible says that that big veil that sat in the temple was rent. It tore in two like Samson of old tore the lion like a lamb. It was torn in two from the top to the bottom. What does this mean for you and for I? Well, I think there's two things. And let me say it this way. On this day, there was a transition from darkness to light. There was also a transition from distance to closeness. That barrier was there to say, come no further. Thank God on Calvary. 
He tore that barrier in two. What does that say to us? Well, number one, it tells us the separation is ended. The Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter number 9 that the purpose of that veil was to signify that the way into the holiest was not yet made manifest. So, preacher, what does it mean that the veil was rent? It meant that now there's a way to approach unto God. We don't approach through a priesthood. Hey, listen, be it Levitical or be it Catholic, we don't approach through a priesthood. We don't come unto God through the means of animal sacrifice. We don't come to God through the means of a temporal human intermediary, but rather we can come to God directly ourselves. So, preacher, don't we need somebody to get us to God? Oh, yeah, we do. And he's sitting at the right hand of God. He lives forevermore. The separation is ended. Hey, the word is not is not far from us. It's nigh unto us. All we have to do. Hey, listen, you don't have to walk a thousand miles to get to God. You just have to walk a few steps. Uh, you, you don't have to pray a thousand prayers. You just have to let the heart, uh, the, the desire of your heart be uttered to him. Uh, you don't have to uh, figure out a way to work to him. He's already worked it all out to get to you. Separation is over and God does not hold mankind at a distance for the thing that forced him to do so. Man's sin problem has been dealt with on Calvary. And if you'll come to Christ and let him address the sin problem of your life, then you can draw nigh unto him. The separation is ended. There's a second truth here. Now notice what the Bible says. It's very specific. Behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. Not from the bottom upward, not from the middle outward from the top to the bottom. Now that may not seem significant to you, but the height of this veil, it would have been many, many feet tall, far beyond human reach. I'm just going to say that again. Far beyond human reach. Uh, can I tell you this? Hey, salvation uh, for mankind, of mankind, it's far beyond human reach. But the Bible says it was rent from top to bottom. What does that signify? It signifies it was God that rent the veil. Now, I don't know about you, but uh, you know, if I go to someone's house and they answer the door and then they open the door wide open and step backward, I take that as an invitation. I'll tell you what God did that day on Calvary. He opened the door wide open and stepped backward. You say, preacher, what are you getting at? I'm saying the separation is ended, but the invitation is extended. God has extended His hand out to mankind. And hey, listen, that the arm of the Lord is not shortened that it cannot save. Uh, the book of Proverbs says that He stretched out His hand unto you. You can refuse if you want to refuse. But uh, listen, I beg you, don't refuse. and Don't turn Him away. Instead, reach out and grab that strong hand. Uh, if you die and go to hell, it won't be because He don't want you. It'll be because you didn't want Him. Because He's made abundantly clear that He desires a close relationship with humanity. The book of Hebrews tells us this is exactly what we are to draw from this truth. It says in verse 19, Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which He hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say His flesh, and having an high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And by the way, when it's talking about sprinkling and when it's talking about washing, it ain't talking about physical water and it ain't talking about physical blood. It's talking about His precious blood and it's talking about the washing of the water of the Word of God. In other words, saying believing the truth of the Word of God, coming to Him and asking Him to forgive you and save you based upon the truth that He's revealed in the Word of God. What are we to draw from this rent veil that God wants us close to Him? There's a transition from distance to closeness. Then the Bible says this at the end of verse 51. It says, The earth did quake and the rocks rent. I thought a good long while about this. I understand on its face what this signifies, but I 
began to pray and say, now Lord, what does this mean to us? Uh, you know, Calvary was deeply concerned not just with cre- uh, not just with redemption, but also with creation. You understand that creation suffered at the hands of sin, just like humanity suffered at the hands of sin. Now, listen, I, I'm not I'm not what you'd call an environmentalist. I know that's hard for you to believe, but uh, I, I'm not. It's not something that I have any kind of great burden for. My Bible tells me that seed time and harvest and sowing and reaping is going to extend and continue until the Lord says it's over. And I'm not worried that we're going to uh, pollute our way into oblivion. The Bible tells me how this earth is going to be destroyed. It's going to melt with fervent heat. It's going to be destroyed when God destroys it. doesn't mean we shouldn't be good stewards of God's creation, but it does mean we shouldn't sit around popping nerve pills worried about some sea lion dying somewhere. Uh, it means that's not what God's called us to do. We're not called to uh, have anxiety over uh, creation. We're called to have mastery over creation. We shouldn't feel bad about that. Amen. I'm going to drive my V8. I didn't say I'm going to drink a V8. I said I'm going to drive my V8. I'm going to turn my air conditioner down to 52. And I'm going to rejoice in it. Amen. I'm not going to feel guilty over it. You feel bad if you want. In fact, feel bad for both of us because I'm going to feel bad a lick about it. But whenever the Lord Jesus died on the cross of Calvary, you remember, listen, He's not just the Savior. He's also the Creator. He created all things. How could that not resonate in the world of His creation? And that's what we see transpiring here. There are a couple things that we could say about it. One, I want you to think about the current condition of creation. This world is a broken place. And we see it all around us. It tends towards decay. The Bible says in Romans chapter 8, verse number 18, I reckon that the sufferings this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creature. Now, it doesn't mean all we are is a creature, but we are a creature. We are God's creation. Uh, The earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. In other words, your old broken body is waiting for your new glorious body. It says, for the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly. Anybody sign up to get old? I didn't. Amen. But I ain't going to stop it from happening. Uh, made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same. In other words, God made our bodies and understands that our bodies are going to break down. Why did he do that? He subjected the same in hope. So in other words, the purpose of it is not because God's done with us, but because He has a plan for His creation. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and prevaileth in pain together until now. Even creation bears witness to the devastating effects of sin around us. Hey, listen, the next time that you pick your finger on a thorn, you can blame Adam for it. Uh, the next time that you break a sweat trying to plant that garden, you can blame Adam for it. Uh, the next time you've got to mow twice in a week, somebody say amen. You better blame Adam for it. That's just part of living here. Amen. Uh, all of these things are the product of mankind's sin and the effects of sin. But the Bible teaches us this. When the Savior died on the cross of Calvary, it sent shockwaves through creation. You know why? Even creation was responding to the truth that was transpiring there on that day. The Bible says that two things happened. One, the earth did quake. That foreshadows another shaking, another quaking that will take place one day. When the Bible teaches us that the Lord's going to destroy this current earth and this current heaven and make a new heaven and a new earth. The book of Hebrews teaches us this. It says in verse number 25, See that you refuse not him that speaketh. For if they escape not who refused him that spake on earth, much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven. Whose voice then, it's talking about at Sinai, whose voice then shook the earth. But now he hath promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not the earth only, 
but also heaven, talking about recreating, creating a new heaven and a new earth. And this word yet once more signifies the removing of those things that are shaken as of things that are made, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. You say, preacher, that's good and everything. I appreciate the Sunday school lesson, but what does it mean to me? There was a transition that day from decay to hope. The fact that the earth quaked and the rocks rent was a testimony that one of these days God is going to remake His creation in the perfection of sinless existence. It's a reminder to you and I that, hey, God ain't given up on humanity. Humanity may have given up on Him, but He ain't given up on humanity. He still has a plan. Let me just say this, in the days that we're living in and the brokenness and feebleness, I, listen, I don't pass from any of them, but i got one or two old people in this church. Can I remind you, hey, listen, your end is not one of broken down despair and discouragement. Your, one is, uh, your end is one of hope and of glory. Uh, that body, you may lay it down one day uh, like a worn out suit, but you're going to be given a new body, glorious and passionate according to His likeness. It was a transition from decay to hope. There's another miracle that happened. The Bible says in verse 52, and by the way, these are two different miracles. You can tell it uh, by the punctuation that's used here. It's not saying that the graves opened because the rocks rent. It's saying that, that the graves were opened as its own miracle. We find here a transition from defeat to victory. Well, I thought about what that must have been like. Could you imagine? It's no wonder that the centurion bears witness to his divinity. I mean, if you were to look at the geographical location of Calvary, and some of you may have been there, you know that that entire hillside is dotted with tombs and with graves. And you imagine as it went dark that night, and for three hours they sat in silent darkness, all of a sudden they hear this man, uh, this Messiah, this preacher, this prophet, this Savior of all men, cry out from the cross and say, It is finished! All of a sudden, you begin to hear rumbles and shakings. The ground begins to tremble beneath you. The rocks begin to break open. And all of a sudden, people's graves start opening up. What a truth that must have been. What a, what a spectacle that must have been. What was God trying to communicate? He was trying to say this, hey, there's a foe that has been defeated. You know that all throughout human history, ever since the fall of man in the garden, death has been a foe, an opponent to mankind. Uh, its greatest tormentor, its greatest dictator, all that changed that day on Calvary. Hey, listen, he went from being the king to being the doorman and nothing more. Uh, the Bible teaches us that the Lord Jesus, he went down into the depths of death, uh, that he, uh, he uh, took death upon himself, that he became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. But he didn't become obedient that he might serve him. He became obedient that he might conquer him. He went into death's domain. He took his keys. He broke his crown. He stole his scepter and he slipped into his chariot wheels and rode back to glory of victor that day. I like how the book of Acts says it in Acts chapter number 2. It says in verse 22, Peter, man, he's getting with it preaching at those Pharisees. And he says, you men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. Him being delivered, not just by them, but by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. He said, you took him, you nailed him to a cross, 
Uh, we took his body down. We laid him in a tomb, but the story did not end there. He says, whom God has raised up, having loosed the pains of death. Why did he do that? Did he do that because it was convenient? Did he do that because it was comical? Did he do that because it was spectacular? No, I'm going to tell you why Jesus got up from the grave. Uh, Peter says it was because it was not possible that he should be holding of it. Death grabbed a hold of him and said, whoo, let go of him. He said, I can't handle that. Death had no more dominion, no more domain. He had conquered the thing. Hey, the Bible says uh, that he... Uh, <laughs> for, oh boy, I'm going to get it said here in just a minute. I ain't getting ready to speak in tongues. I'm just absent-minded. Somebody say amen to that. <laughs> for what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God singing His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. Uh, hey, what's the power of death? It's sin. What Jesus do? He came and He condemned sin through death. He indicted sin through death and He took death's power. We see the foe that was defeated that day. It was a transition from defeat to victory because a foe was defeated, but also we see the fear that was destroyed that day. Notice what it says in Hebrews chapter number 2, verse 14, one of my favorite passages. It says, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, He also Himself, talking about Jesus, likewise took part of the same, that through death, he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. You know, one of the great glorious good news tidings from the tomb was that death doesn't have to be feared anymore. Through all human history, it's been a tormentor. But now it is merely the doorman that opens the door into the presence of God. When you get born again by the grace of God, you don't have to fear death anymore. Boy, we've talked a lot about death over the past few years, haven't we? I, I, there's been men that I think have been reasonable in their caution. There's been some, I'm sure, that have let fear become their master. But can I say to you today, when you got born again, death no longer has the right to bully you. That You now have dominion over that influence. Uh, you, listen, you're a brother of Jesus Christ. You're a child of God. Hey, listen, your family's already conquered death. We don't have to be afraid of it. You say, preacher, are you saying you wouldn't be scared to die? Well, listen, I, I might be scared of the process, but listen, I'm not scared of the outcome. I, I, I wouldn't want to it. I wouldn't long to it. You say, preacher, uh, they got buses heading to glory. Well, you go ahead and take this one. I'll wait for the next one. I, listen, I, I'm, I, I'm not itching. I'm not suing to go, but I am saying this. When the time comes, I don't have to fear it. You know why? Because on Calvary, Calvary changed all that. We don't have to live in fear of death anymore. Death can live in fear of us. For we're on the winning side. We see a transition from uh, death, uh, from defeat to victory. And then finally, notice verse 52. I said finally. That don't mean nothing when a Baptist preacher says that. But notice what it says. After this happened, it says, And many of the bodies of the saints which slept arose came out of the graves after His resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared unto many. This is a fascinating passage of Scripture. It's often overlooked. The significance of it in the context is this is what we would call the wave offering. In the Old Testament, whenever harvest was given, there would be a portion of that harvest that would first be taken and waved before God. And it was a token of gratitude and of acknowledgement of God's faithfulness and God's provision. And inasmuch as the resurrection of the Lord Jesus is a harvest, and that's how the Bible likens it. It's like a harvest. It's sown in corruption. It's raised in incorruption. These Old Testament saints were the wave offering. They were the first signification uh, that there had been a resurrection that had taken place. I thought about what it means to you and I practically, and I would say it this way, there was a transition this day from death to life. Notice the first thing we see, we see the picture of waking in new life. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand me. I don't subscribe to this concept of soul sleep. 
I believe when a man dies, his body might go to sleep in, in a figurative way in the, in the ground. But I believe his consciousness is awake always. I believe he always, he's awake somewhere. Hey, listen, uh, the, the rich man lifted his eyes in hell. He didn't go to sleep. Uh, he was immediately awake and aware somewhere. But that body was asleep in the ground. And the Bible teaches us that God awakened the body of these Old Testament saints that they might inhabit it again and walk around. You know, spiritually, that's what God does to a man when he gets born again. He wakens out of the darkness and sleep of his sin and brokenness, and now he is awakened to a new world that he didn't even know existed. I remember when I got born again, the whole world looked different to me. And, and, and probably the world looked more different to me than even I looked different to me. I was a 10-year-old boy. Wasn't much in my life that changed, but everything in my world changed. It was like a whole new world. I know what the songwriters sang about when, when they wrote down that little 8-year-old girl, that song, I'm in a new world. That's what it felt like to me as a 10-year-old boy. You know, when God saves a man, it's not that He might just secure him a seat in heaven, but it's that He might give him new life here. That he might change and transform your life. We see the picture of waking in new life. But then notice number two, we see the picture of walking in new life. The Bible says when Christ rose from the grave, they didn't just lay there lazy in the, in the grave. They got up and they walked around. Uh, what were they doing? Well, they were bearing testimony. That's what the Bible tells us here. It says that they uh, appeared unto many. That implies that they had a message. In other words, uh, they had been given new life and they were tasked now to walk around in that new life and everybody they could find say, hey, look up here, Jesus rose from the dead. Oh man, hey listen, we're coming into Resurrection Sunday next week. What are we preaching about? What are we talking about? What is the Christian life? It's waking up in new spiritual life and walking around and finding everybody you can and saying, hey, Jesus has rose from the dead. There's new life available for you and for me. Now there's one more transition here. You're already mad at me saying, now preacher, you said there's five. Well, there's five miracles. But I do want you to notice there's one more transition that took place. Look at verse 54 with me. The Bible says this, Now when the centurion and they that were with him watching Jesus saw the earthquake and those things that were done, they feared greatly, saying truly this was the Son of God. I don't think it would be inappropriate to say this was no less a miracle than the other miracles that took place on that day. And just as those other miracles are the shockwave, the after effects of spiritual reality, so likewise, this, this wicked, this pagan Roman soldier, he looks up at the precious Son of God. He hadn't seen how he lived, but he sure enough saw how he died. And in his death, he says, there's something different about this man. Now listen, we didn't see him live. We have the record of Scripture. But we also have the record of his death. And in seeing that death, can we not look and say, there's something different about this man. He didn't live like others, but he didn't die like others either. All of heaven, all of earth bear witness and testimony to the unique distinction to the proprietary nature of this man's both life and death and resurrection. You said, preacher, what do you see here? I see a transition. But it's a transition from doubt to decision. He had seen enough that day. He said, I'm not going to die in my sins. I'm going to believe on this man. He wasn't the only one. There was a thief that was hanging just beside the Lord Jesus who looked over and said, Lord, will you remember me when we come into, when you come into your kingdom? Called him a righteous man, says he hath done nothing amiss. There were others there that day. There was a man by the name of Simon, a Cyrenian, who they tasked with bearing the cross after the Lord Jesus. Later on, it appears as though he believed on the Lord and his sons go on to serve the Lord in the New Testament church. I'm saying this, hey, 
Calvary changed a lot of things in heaven, a lot of things on earth, and a lot of things under the earth, but it also changed some things in some human hearts. Can I ask you this question? I'm not asking you if Calvary changed everything. I'm asking if it's changed you. Have you believed on the Lord? This Roman soldier could have done what others did, stood back and said, wow! And turned around and walked back into the deadness of his old life. But instead, he looked at this man and he said, this is not just, hey, hey, the perversions want to call it a son of God. That's not what my King James Bible says. He said, truly, this man was the son of God. Holy, unique, distinct, separate from sinners, perfect and righteous. He looked at him and said, not just this is what a man, but he said, this is the man. This is the God. And he believed on him. All that Calvary changes, what a tragedy it would be if it never changed you. You understand when a sinner dies in their sins, it would not be totally inappropriate to say it's it's like they died and it's almost like Calvary never happened, at least not for their life. And it's not that it didn't, but it's that they never availed themselves of the precious truth of it. So the question you have before you today is not did it change things, but has it changed you? And if it is not, are you going to turn around and walk away back into that lost dead life, hopelessness, misery, and emptiness? Or are you going to like this Roman centurion make that transition from doubt to decision and come to the Lord Jesus and believe on Him? Let's bow together this morning. The altar's open. You shouldn't wait a single moment if God's dealing with your heart. You should just right now slip out of your seat and come down to the altar. If you need to be saved, if you're a lady, we'll have a lady pray with you. Take a Bible and show you how to be saved. Not embarrass you or make you give any big speeches. But just pray with you. That's all we want to do. If you're a man, we'll have a man come down and pray with you and show you from the Bible how you can leave here and know that you're saved, know that heaven's your home, know that you're a Christian. But see, this is a decision you're going to have to make. Nobody else can make it for you. I beg you, make that decision today from doubt to decision. Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in His name. The altar is open. Melissa's playing. You're not going to find a better time than now. Sitting in a church house, piano playing. People sitting there with Bibles ready to show you how to be saved. You're in a place where folks love you, where they're here for you. You ain't going to find a better time than right now. Won't you slip out of your seat and meet us in this altar? You take that first step, God will meet you out in the aisle. He'll carry you the rest of the way. You'll have the courage to step out and meet Him in this place. These are praying. We have all the time we need. If God touched your heart, I want you to meet Him in this altar. Would you do that this morning? Nobody can make this decision for you. If I could, I would. That's how important it is, but I can't. So all I can do is walk around and tell you that you don't have to die in your sins because Jesus rose from the grave. He went to Calvary and died in your place. These are praying. We have all the time we need. If God touched your heart, meet us down here in this altar. If you're in the altar and you want somebody to pray with you, slip your hand up. We'll come down and pray with you. The altar is open. I invite you to come. Hey, maybe there'll be some Christian that say, Preacher, boy, Calvary changed my life, but I got a loved one and they, they were heavy on my heart all this morning. Won't you come down and pray for them right now? Won't you slip out of your seat? You've got a loved one that you're burdened for that needs the Lord. Won't you meet the Lord in this altar? Pray for them. Some are